What's up, Renaissance? I got my mask on my wrist. Whoops, didn't mean to do that. Okay, my name is Jessica. I'm the communications director here at Renaissance Church, and so glad to welcome all of you to be here with you this morning. Fun fact about me, I actually got my start in public speaking uh, back in high school when I was running for senior class president. Yes, yes. I had to give my campaign speech, and as you might imagine, I made all the typical campaign promises, better tasting lunch, uh, an epic senior class trip, longer free periods, and I'm happy to report that not only did I get elected, but I accomplished none of the things that I promised I was going to do. Um, I think we managed to get some t-shirts, like that was it, that said seniors, and then uh, I was strong-armed by the principal to use our class fund to buy a new sign for the front of the school or something like that. So as you might have guessed, that was the official start and end to my political career. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, but the interesting thing about me in high school is that even though I was senior class president and I was known by a lot of the kids in my school, high school is actually a pretty isolating and lonely time for me. Um, the main reason for this was because I went to a large public school with about 1,600 students and um, of all of those students, I was one of just 30 black students with the remaining 98% being white, <clears throat> excuse me. And so for any of you who've been a minority before in a large majority culture context, you know that what often happens is you spend a lot of time and energy feeling like you have to explain things about yourself that those in the majority culture don't really understand. So for me, it was, you know, like why I use certain words, um, why, um, I ate certain foods at home, shout out to mom with the curry chicken and the ackee and saltfish. Um, why my hair was the way it was and did and didn't do certain things. Um, you know, the songs and the music that we listened to on Saturday mornings growing up, there was just a lot of things in general that I had to explain because for the most part, especially in the 90s before social media even, most of the people interacting me with me, I was the only black person they'd ever met. Everything they knew about black people was what they'd seen on TV, and we know how that goes. So I was like, you know, every normal teenager, I think, who longed for social connection and a sense of belonging. Um, and again, I was pretty well adjusted and liked and had lots of friends, but I often still, even being around a lot of people, felt myself isolated. Sociologists and psychologists would often describe this like this. They say, loneliness is the state or distress of distress or discomfort that results when one perceives a gap between your desires for connection and your actual experiences of it. So in other words, it's a pain that comes from wanting more connection than what we're actually getting. There's been other times not related to being the only black person in a space or being the only woman in a space, but based on my life circumstances where I too just felt alone, that I was surrounded by people, but I felt isolated. And during the height of the pandemic, I think I can go out on a limb and say that 
There's people in here who know what that feels like, that you found yourself perhaps surrounded by millions of people who live on the island of Manhattan or hundreds of people who live in your apartment building and still you felt alone, isolated, forgotten. Scripture talks about this type of isolation and says in the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verse 18, it's not good for man to be alone. But the Bible also talks about another type of loneliness, which is even more painful. It's the pain of feeling like God himself has forgotten about you, that God has left you, that God doesn't care about you. That my brothers and sisters, is a different type of pain altogether. Last week, Jordan kicked off a series looking at the Psalms. Uh, he walked us through Psalm 1, and this is something that he's going to continue to do for the remaining weeks of the summer here and there. And to keep up with him, we're going to look at a different Psalm today. Um, and we don't have hymnals here, but some of you may have grown up in a church where there is a hymn book that was in the pews when you sat down. Anybody go to a church like that? Oh, yeah, look at that. Okay. So one way to think about the Psalms is that they are the divinely inspired hymnals for public worship. These were, in fact, the Psalms, the prayers that were set to music and sung by the Israelites. And then after the arrival of Jesus, even the early Christians continued to sing and pray the Psalms as well. In fact, in medieval times, the Psalter was usually the only book of the Bible that your normal everyday Christian would actually have in their possession. So there's a general belief far and wide across theologians that all the Psalms should be used and reused in every Christian's prayer life. The Psalms are different than other parts of the Bible, right? So we have books like the Gospels, which detail the life and times of Jesus. And those books are meant to be read to understand his life better, to understand more of the nature and character of God through his life. But the Psalms are different because they are meant to be done. What do I mean by that? Meaning that we're to put the Psalms into our own prayers. Not just read them, but let them permeate our prayers. And we know this because Jesus himself did this. Jesus quoted the Psalms more than any other book, and he quoted the Psalms up through the end of his life. Today, we're going to look at Psalm 13, which is a short psalm, and you may recognize it. It's written by David, and I think it has a lot to offer us. It should be on the screens for you to read along with me. So starting in verse 1, how long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will I store up anxious concerns within me, agony in my mind every day? How long will my enemy dominate me? Consider me and answer, Lord my God, restore brightness to my eyes. Otherwise, I will sleep in death. My enemy will say, I've triumphed over him. 
and my foes will rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your faithful love. My heart will rejoice in your deliverance. I will sing to the Lord because he has treated me generously. So I love this psalm for many reasons, uh, but one reason for sure is how it seems to kind of fly in the face of a version of Christianity that's very popular in Western society or America these days that basically said, God loves you, and by loving him back, he'll give you the life of your dreams. I mean, that version of Christianity does sound pretty good, but the problem with it is when life doesn't actually line up and look the way that we wanted it to, we're often left feeling like there's something wrong in our relationship with God. And the other problem is when we actually turn to scripture and read the pages in the Bible, it never tells us to expect a neat and easy picture-perfect life. Instead, we see that along with the abundant life found in God, there is also struggle, lament, confusion, and feeling forgotten by God. Sometimes the truth is that life just isn't that wonderful. And I love how Psalm 13 puts this struggle of life on full display. David is the author here, and y'all, he is miserable. I don't mean to laugh about it, but he's just like really, really upset. He feels forgotten. He feels ignored by God. He feels real distress. And now here's the thing about feelings. I think we often find two extreme camps of people. There are some people who ignore feelings and think that feelings should have nothing to do with our relationships with God. Or they think that a feeling they have judged as being bad takes away from their faith in God. But God has given us feelings as an expression of his image in us. We can feel anger and love and care and sorrow and many other feelings because God is recorded in scripture as feeling those very things as well. So while we tend to be socialized to place positive or negative judgments on our feelings and emotions, anger is bad or disappointment is bad or sadness is sad, bad, feelings are a gift from God and a sign that we're made in his image. And not only that, but the raw feelings, the real, real that we see in Psalm 13, they're not only okay, but the fact that they're in scripture, it tells us that God wants us to share our genuine feelings, even when it's anger directed at him. Listen, God doesn't just accept your raw emotions. He gives it to us in the Psalms, which is essentially saying here, Pray to me, talk to me like this. Remember, the Psalms are to be done, meaning that we put them into our own prayers and God can handle that full range of emotions. Now, on the other side of the feelings conversation, there's some people who live their lives not ignoring their feelings, but ruled by their feelings. They believe their feelings represent reality. If I feel this way, this is how it is. So if I feel abandoned by God, I am abandoned by God. 
If I feel forgotten by God, I am forgotten by God. We incorrectly internalize these feelings as truth and make no room for faith. Yes, we do have feelings because we're made in the image of God, but our feelings are affected by our fallenness. And so as real as our feelings might be, we can't trust our feelings to direct our relationship with God. Because as another writer puts it in Jeremiah 17:9, the heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? I think this feels hard to receive in a culture like ours where we're often told that we should follow our hearts. Uh, but scripture tells us our hearts are deceitful and deceit means that our hearts are either straight up misrepresenting the truth or they're doing this more subtle thing of concealing, like not showing us the full picture of the truth. Deceit isn't always intentionally lying. I think sometimes it's just showing a piece of the picture as opposed to the full picture. And that limited perspective ultimately changes the way that we move and make decisions. So when I met Jordan, who for new people uh, who are here, he's the lead pastor of Renaissance and he happens to be married to me. <laughs> Praise God. Uh, and Jordan is not here today. So uh, Jordan, whenever you hear this message, I love you, okay? Don't say all, oh, cuz. It's time for the people to know. I love you, Jordan, um, but they need to know the truth. <laughs> right. Jordan's not here because he and my oldest son are at a father-son sleepaway camp. Okay? Now that is an awe. Oh, my gosh. I can't. Okay. So I don't think that Jordan deceived me in the deliberate sense, right? Like, I don't think that he's ever really intentionally lied to me. I mean... He does do this thing where he hides sneaker boxes in the closet, thinking that I won't know there's sneakers inside. There's like the black Nike tape. Y'all know what that looks like across the box. Like, I won't know what that is. But what I will say is that I was deceived in the sense of maybe just not having the full picture of everything I was getting when I was marrying him. So I met Jordan about nine years ago. And he was nice, and he was smiling, and, you know, he had his little swagger and all the things. And I was like, you know, we talked about our journeys, we talked about faith, and I was like, yo, this dude is really legit. And then he told me he was a lawyer, and he'd gone to seminary, and I was like, wow, okay, like, smart, check. Ambitious, check, yes. Like, Lord, I see what you're doing here. I see it. I'm with you. I'm with you. Okay. But I never asked and Jordan never disclosed that with all of those higher education degrees comes a whole rack of student loans. That's right. Debt. Debt. The, the D word. That's right. And so after we get married, we're living in our, actually on this block, in third floor brownstone apartment on 121st street and i'm putting together our budget 
and I'm, you know, I get to the Excel line that says like Sally Mae payment and I ask Jordan, you know, so what is your payment? I'm expecting it to kind of be cell phone bill-esque, you know, cause that's kind of like what mine is. And I was wrong. I was very, very wrong. And I, that's all I'm gonna say about that. I'm not gonna get into the details because it might take me down to a dark place and I'll be like, how long, Lord, will I be paying these bills? But he got me. That's what I'm gonna say, he got me. Jordan got me. And, you know, would I have not said yes had I known, you know, to the proposal? I mean, I love my kids and it's worked out, you know. But I might have taken a day or two just to think it over. I might have said, like, give me Saturday and Sunday and then maybe I'll say yes. No. So anyway, on a more serious note, when Scripture says that our heart is deceitful, Sometimes I think we recoil at that because we think we know our intentions and our motivations and most of the time we're never intentionally lying to ourselves. But our hearts don't always know or show us the full picture. Because of our sinful nature, our hearts simply conceal things. If we could see everything about God, everything about his goodness, everything about his plans, everything about his timing, if nothing about God was hidden from us, I don't think we'd trust our emotions and our feelings the way that we do. So on one hand, reading a passage like Psalm 13, we see the Bible is radical in its invitation for us to be honest and pray our difficult feelings. It was all right for David to feel these feelings and it was good for him to take those feelings to God. At the same time, there's this caution, though, that David should never accept those feelings as capturing the full picture of his experience. Our hearts simply conceal things from us. So now for today, at the very least, I believe what God is calling you and me into is not the American version of Christianity, which is all neat and without struggle and says that God loves you and will make life wonderful. But it includes experiencing a wide array of feelings like frustration and anger and disappointment and confusion and learning how to persevere in faith in spite of all those things. For the rest of today, I'm gonna look at Psalm 13 in three parts. We're gonna look at the complaint, the cry, and ultimately the cure. So number one, the complaint. When you look at these first few verses, um, one through two, it says, how long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will I store up anxious concerns within me, agony in my mind every day? How long will my enemy dominate me? I mean, I think the first obvious thing to note here is this repetitive use of the phrase, how long? It's repeated four times. And how long is this really critical question? One thing this scripture shows us is that sometimes the obstacles we face aren't inherently intense. But more so, it's that 
We're having to endure the obstacles for far longer than we ever anticipated having to. So, you know, we feel we could endure pretty much anything if we knew when it would come to an end. And I think a lot of us felt this in a very real way in 2020, right? Like, I could stay inside and be isolated if I just knew for sure when this quarantine is going to end. So sometimes we are tired of problems and we wonder, like David, this has been going on for a really long time, Lord. How, how, if this is going on for so long, could you possibly still care? One theologian says it like this, it is not under the sharpest, but the longest trials that we are most in danger of fainting and giving up. When Job was confronted with immense pain and suffering back to back, he was able to say, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. But when he could see no end to his troubles, he sunk under them. So for you, that might look like being in between jobs is okay for a couple of months, but when you're still getting rejections six months, nine months, 12 months after being unemployed, we start to question God and his timing. And going through a rough patch in your marriage might be something that you anticipated, older couples told you might happen, but you've been in this relationship for 12 years and there's still things that you and your spouse can't seem to see eye to eye on and you're wondering, you're questioning God like about the purpose of this relationship. Or maybe we desire to be in a relationship and in the meantime we're like, yo Jesus, it's me and you, we rockin' hard body. Uh, But then the months go by, the years go by and friends around you are starting to get booed up. Uh Uh-oh, somebody felt that. And we start to question, how long, Lord? How long? Like, when is it my turn? And maybe it's dealing with the pain of situations that you have zero potential to change. Like, maybe you're missing a loved one who's passed away that you're never gonna see again. You know, last week marked two years since my father passed away, and like a lot of people in this room, my relationship with him was complex, to put it nicely. And so I find myself often struggling with the grief of his absence, missing him, but then also wrestling with unprocessed disappointments that I'll never get a chance to fully process and air with him. And I ask God, why? Why would you design my life like this? How long will I struggle with this, Lord? How long will this hurt? It could be any number of unmet expectations that you're experiencing right now in your life. It might be a physical ailment or condition that you deal with day in and day out and no one can really see on the surface. It might be a sin pattern that you just can't seem to shake. It might be an endless struggle to make ends meet financially. Whatever it is, we will all at some point find ourselves feeling this gap between what we hope to get out of life from God 
and what we actually got. How long, O Lord? It seems every child of God has asked this question at one time or another, and that all of us have felt neglected by God, or at least like we've had to wait a really long time for God to do what we think needs to be done. When we find ourselves asking these questions, it's important to give voice to these things, but even more important than crying to our friends or crying to the people who are in our DNA group, which is great, we need to do what David did and turn our complaints to God, the one who truly holds us in the palm of his hand. So let's look at the cry of David made in verses three and four. He says, consider me an answer, Lord my God. Restore brightness to my eyes, otherwise I will sleep in death. My enemy will say I have triumphed over him and my foes will rejoice because I'm shaken. Now, if I had to define prayer, I think I'd define it as the request for God to enter into our present reality. Sometimes that means asking God for something, um, which I think most of us are good at doing, but that can't be all that it is. Going to God with our laundry list of requests, that can't be all it is. More than that, we need to invite God into our situations, into our feelings. The book of uh, 1 Kings in the Old Testament, it tells this inter interesting story about the prophet Elijah and his interactions with the king of the Israelites at the time, Ahab. And First and Second Kings, those are fascinating books of the Bible. If you've never read them, I highly recommend that you do, because um, man, like it's as salacious as maybe the most popular Netflix series you're following these days. So um, anyway, unlike Solomon or David or other rulers who follow God, the king at the time, Ahab, even though he was Jewish, he was worshiping an idol called Baal. And God was using Elijah, the prophet, to steer Israel back toward himself. So in 1 Kings chapter 18, we see that God has commanded Elijah to approach King Ahab. And it says in 1 Kings 18 and 1, after a long time in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, go and present yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. So at the time, there's this famine and severe drought in the land, and the Israelites, who'd been influenced by their king, Ahab, to believe in Baal, they looked to Baal as the god of storms and rain. So what this meant was like during those long summer dry months, they believed that Baal was absent, I guess had like gone on vacation or something like that. And then in the fall, when the rain came back, they believed that Baal was awake and he was active once again. And the people, essentially, they had no concept of a sovereign God who ruled over all of his creation. So Elijah, this prophet, he's this classic example of a man who knew how to pray, who's like 
He's like this with God. He, you know, is set apart in every way from the way he looks to him living like in far off places and caves and stuff like that, like super deep. And in this chapter, he's praying for rain. And he's not praying for rain just for the heck of it. You know, there's a drought in the land and he wants to make it crystal clear that the drought and the famine are controlled by God, not Baal, who was just a fabrication of man's imagination. So in a sense, Elijah's name is on the line here. And because he tells the king that it's going to rain, and scripture says Elijah goes up to pray to God, he like gets ready. He's like, okay, God said the rain is coming. Let me get down. He's like going for it. He's on his knees. His head is down. He has a servant with him. And he tells, he tells the servant to look out for rain. In verse 43, he says, go and look toward the sea, he told his servant. And he went up and looked. This is the servant. Servant comes back. He says, there is nothing there. And Elijah seven times said, go back. He kept praying. And then he'd say, now look. He went again. Kept praying. Go look. He went again. And I'm just like imagining this moment um, in, in Elijah's life where his, his name is on the line, he's praying for something really good, and it just kind of feels like this setup for discouragement. Like praying for something that you really want, something that's good and godly, you get down to pray and then nothing happens. And I don't know if you've ever been there before, like you were praying to God for something and you really have faith and really believe that it's going to happen. You pray sincerely and nothing happens. And you're left kind of wondering, now what? Now in Elijah's case, he prays that seventh time and finally the storm clouds begin to move in from the horizon. And I think in this passage, we see, also in others, that we're to ask God for things with boldness and specificity, just like Elijah did, just like David did. We're to be honest, we're to be diligent, yet we need patient submission to God's will and his timing and his wise love. There's sometimes where God invites you to pray because God will change your circumstances. But in every time, God invites us to pray because God will change you. And we see that that's what happens to David in Psalm 13. And by God's grace, I truly believe, brothers and sisters, it can happen to us as well. David starts with his complaints. He cries out and asks God to intervene. And he ultimately finds rest and strength for his troubled soul by grounding himself in the faithful love of God. And this brings us to our third point, the cure. David in verses 5 and 6, although nothing seems to have changed in his circumstances, he has a change of heart. David says, but I have trusted in your faithful love. My heart will rejoice in your deliverance. I will sing to the Lord because he has treated me generously. 
I find the tenses in this text used here just to be really fascinating that David doesn't say, but I will trust in your faithful love. And he doesn't say, the Lord will treat me generously. Instead, he says, I have trusted in your faithful love. And he has treated me generously. David is looking back. He's engaging in a practice of remembering what God has done for him in the past. David intentionally turns his eyes from what he's experiencing to remembering the trials God had walked with him through. And I think many of us forget this as a spiritual practice. We suffer from amnesia when we're in the midst of enduring our trials, forgetting how God has been both faithful and generous. When our trials become overwhelming, we need these moments of reflection where we can surely recall the times when the money was funny, I didn't have it, but somehow I was kept afloat. Or when the pain was crushing, I was crying on my bathroom floor, but God sent people who prayed for me and encouraged me and cared for me and brought me a meal just when I needed it. Or when we wrote the script, we had it all lined up and it was doom and gloom in the end, but somehow God surprised us beyond what we could hope for and imagine and redeemed it. And even if you can't right now, sitting there, recall one example in your life of God's intervention and care and provision, we can all and we should all remember the faithful love and generosity lavished on us by Jesus when he stayed on the cross and suffered for our sakes. Tim and Kathy Keller put it this way, they say, we'd all do well to hear Jesus praying verses one through four of Psalm 13 on the cross as he lost the Father's face and as he paid for our sins. Jesus was the one saying, how long, Lord, will you forget me forever? Jesus was the one saying, how long will you hide your face from me? Jesus was the one saying, please don't let my enemies triumph over me. Please, Lord, answer, restore brightness to my eyes. I don't know the specifics of everything going on in your life about the things that you've been enduring for a long time, about the pain and the unmet expectations. I wish there was a way I could snap my finger and make it end. I don't know God's specific plans for your life outside of wanting to be glorified through it. So I can't give you hard answers for why you have to do the things that are hard, that make you feel lonely or make you feel forgotten. But my prayer is that we, church, would fight off the feelings of forgottenness and instead remember that quite the opposite, Jesus had us in mind when he 
stayed on that cross for our sakes and cried out these verses. I think if we keep that in mind, his faithful love, his generosity toward us, I think it's what leads us to the place of being able to pray, verses five and six. God, I will trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing your praise, Lord, for you have been good to me. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for being a God who can handle all of our emotions. God, um, for being the kind of loving Father who, while you don't promise that everything will be neat and perfect and easy, you promise that you never leave or forsake us. God, I pray as we go about our days this week that we would have boldness and confidence when we bring our requests to you, when we share our feelings with you, knowing that you love and you care. Father, would you walk with us and uh, just remind us daily of your faithful love and generosity. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.